Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's been almost 20 years since wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park and parts of Idaho and placed on the endangered species list. At the time, advocates said that wolves were a vital link in the natural ecosystem. Worried about the effect of wolves on their livelihoods, ranchers and hunters protested their introduction, some even filing lawsuits. The discussion became heated to the point of threatened violence. Fast forward to today. For ranchers and hunters, wildlife advocates and nature enthusiasts, wolves and their fate have again become the center of a growing controversy. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing that wolves, except for Mexican wolves of the Southwest, be delisted nationwide as an endangered species, and that their management be handled at a state level. Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming have already delisted wolves and implemented hunting seasons. There's a new documentary film, Return of the Wolves, the next chapter, which explores both sides of the issue and examines the role of the wolf in Yellowstone, the West, and the Southwest. Filmmaker John Howe says wolves are symbolic of the cultural divide in the West. Some see them as the spirit of the wilderness. Others view them as the return of a historic adversary. They remain in the crosshairs of controversy. And the film, Return of the Wolves, uh, premieres Monday, November 25th, 9 p.m. on KUED Channel 7. It's been picked up for, by, for national distribution by PBS in January as well. And we welcome in filmmaker John Howe. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So congratulations, uh, picked up by PBS. That'll be nice. I think so. I mean, this is a really important story, so I'm glad the nation will have a chance to uh, to see it. You know, it's been part of a long national dialogue, as you know, and uh, I I think it's something that uh, people have a lot of interest in. We've done, I guess, now three films on wolves. We did one of the first uh, reintroduction films uh, going back to the late 80s, even before wolves were uh, officially reintroduced. But it uh, it's always been a pretty lively topic. So uh, I think it's uh, it's a good subject for a national caliber film. Let's hear the trailer to the to the film. This You introduce a, a phrase that really piqued my interest. I guess that's why it's in the trailer. Let's hear this. Wolves both haunt and fascinate us. Some believe one of our nation's most significant natural history events took place in 1995. Wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park and the wilderness of Idaho. Events took place which ignited a storm of controversy. That's Peter Coyote who uh, narrates the, the film. Um, and the phrase is, some believe that the, uh, one of the most na- uh, significant natural history events happened in 1995. Uh, this, especially from the point of view of, of advocates, is, is certainly true. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's certainly a, a pretty big event, no matter what uh, side of the fence you sit on. Uh, you know, that's one of the first things I think that's, at least in terms of, uh, well, I mean, there have been other things that are, have certainly been comparable, I guess, in some ways. But I think the Return of the Wolves has been one of the most uh, publicized anyway. And uh yeah, like I say, it depends on which side of the fence you sit on as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And that's really so much of what the film is about. It goes into a real dialogue with uh, a lot of different stakeholders, and they discuss their points of view and what they think is good and what they think is bad. And it, uh, like I say, I think it's really part of this whole sort of cultural divide that's happening in the West. And it really just depends on where you sit in the, in the uh, cultural landscape. And that really, uh, it seems like it, that colors, uh, depending on where you are in that cultural divide, it sort of colors the way you, you come at this. We'll be talking about this. Let's, let's hear a, a clip from the film. This is the reintroduction of the wolves, 1995. This is uh, number two. 
Wolves are predators that must kill to survive. No different from African lions, cheetahs, and tigers. Yet wolves provoke a different response. I've seen it when they've killed uh, eight or ten elk in one group and eaten part of three or four of them. Uh, they just enjoy the kill so much. And uh, that is definitely very hard on wildlife populations. In truth, wolves are just wolves. They're completely honest who they are. They're big, large predators. Uh, they kill big game animals. Sometimes they kill livestock. Uh, they very rarely attack people, but they do sometimes, but it's very rare. The wolf's reputation came from demonic images which frequent nightmares. There's very few positive stories about wolves, so I, I guess um, we've lived with this imaginary wolf for a long time. The Alberta wolves came to Yellowstone. Lawsuits were filed to prevent their release. Bruce Babbitt, President Clinton's Secretary of the Interior, said the crates would soon become coffins if the wolves were not released. On a cold, gray day in January 1995, wolves came back to Yellowstone. Some bystanders howled as they arrived. Others howled in protest. It had been decades since the howl of the wolf had been heard in Yellowstone. So it gives a little flavor of the controversy. 1995, wolves were uh, reintroduced. You're the howl of the wolves, and you hear the <laughs> howl of supporters. And I don't know if you hear howl of protests, but there certainly were protests, including threats of violence. Yeah, the protests were pretty heated, um, and I think that was a lot of the a lot of the story. What you heard in that clip were uh, kind of a uh, uh, sort of an examples of some of the divi uh, diverse views that uh, people held on that. One is Martin Davis, who's a rancher. He lives sort of on the north end of the park in Paradise Valley. There, he's had some issues with wolves and affect, you know, certainly affecting his hunting business and others. And then Ed Bangs was uh, instrumental in, you know, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and he's kind of giving the counterpoint to that. Suzanne Stone from Defenders of Wildlife talks about the reputation of wolves and kind of how some of their um, image has come from stories like Little Red Riding Hood and, and other things like that. So... Um, you know, it's just an example of uh, a lot of the things that have gone on with wolves over the last, uh, you know, several years. And it's, uh, uh, you know, like I say, it depends on where you sit on that side of the fence, you know, depending on, uh, you know, whether you think that's a good idea or bad. Did, did you have trouble going out and finding ranchers? Were they willing to talk? I, I could imagine that. Yeah, they were. You know? Okay, um, yeah. Although it's, it's a really interesting kind of thing. Martin Davis, I think, is... Very uh, eloquent uh, for that point of view, and he, I think he represents it very well in the film. But in the earlier films, we talked to a number of ranchers uh, when wolves were first starting to be uh, talked about for reintroduction. Some of the wolves were coming through Canada and down into Montana, uh, and we had ranchers in that that uh, you know that actually wolves had come in. They had predated on some cattle near Browning, Montana, um, and. The rancher up there, um, you know, got a lot of press um, based on that, and uh, some of it. And he was actually in our film had some pretty graphic uh, photos and things like that. So it was, um, 
But I haven't found the ranchers to be reticent to talk. They actually have um, pretty uh, strong points of view. And um, it's like most of the things, I guess, even between the, the government and some of the opposing sides. But it's the same with filmmakers. It's kind of a, a matter of trust, and, and that's... Uh, uh, sort of what you have to do, you know, and it's and it's uh, a matter of treating people fairly, and then they tend to uh, open up um, pretty strongly. If you just joined us, we're talking with John Howe, a filmmaker. His latest film is Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. It's been almost 20 years since wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park and surrounding areas, uh, and uh, now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing that wolves, except for the Mexican wolves in the Southwest, be delisted nationwide as endangered species. That's happened in several states, and uh, they're proposing that this happen uh, nationwide. In fact, I just uh, had an email that came into the station uh, today from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They're uh, hosting a public hearing for gray and Mexican wolf proposals. That's happening in uh, Denver, and I'm sure these will be happening uh, you know, around the country, or at least in the West. Yes, I think they're having comments for a year or so on you know before they actually make this final decision as to the delisting. Uh, so you you'll be able to weigh in and and you can weigh in right now if you'd like at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Love to get your feelings, or you can uh, join us at upraxis at gmail dot com. Upraxis at gmail dot com. We have John Howe with us uh, for the hour talking about uh, wolves. I wonder if we could explore a little more in depth the uh, the point of view of the, the ranchers. It's uh, of course it's economic losses. They're losing uh, cattle and sheep. Uh, I was interested to learn, I hadn't uh, known about this uh, part as much, uh, some of the ranchers double as uh, as guides, hunting guides, right? And, and so with the uh, lowering of the elk population, that cuts into that business. Well, some do. Martin Davis is one that does. He's, you know, he's a rancher, but he also has an outfitting business, and he runs uh, oh, more of a, some, some sort of a tourist business. Uh, Group and you know with horse rides and things like that in the summer and things as well. But but yeah, that's uh, essentially his point of view. I think from a hunting standpoint is that they're seeing less elk um, around Yellowstone and in the areas that they frequent. And there's different points of view about that as as we go into in the film. Um, Doug Smith from Yellowstone, who's the leader of the Yellowstone Wolf Project, Dr. Doug Smith uh, says that there's a variety of factors causing that, not just wolves. Uh, in fact, he calls it the barstool biology that is blaming wolves for a lot of these kinds of things. But the ranchers kind of see it a different way. Um, you know, they're seeing less elk, and um, you know, probably for a lot of different reasons. Doug Smith would say that that Yellowstone is as predator-rich as it's probably been in in much of its history, uh, in terms of a resurgence of uh, grizzly bears and cougars, and there are a lot of other factors in there, from climate to many other things that are going on there. But I do think, and we say that in the film, as you as you just drive through, and as somebody who's been filming up there for a long time, you do see less elk. And there's a lot of different um, points of view regarding why that might be, um, just in terms of dispersal. Possibly they're higher up. Possibly there's uh, they're just not grouping in the same numbers like they did because they're more prone to uh, predation that way. And um, but. Uh, evidently, there are studies going on right now to determine exactly why that is. So hopefully there will be some good data on that in the near future. Another uh, strain that you, you hear expressed in your film by several people is this idea of uh, it's outside group 
groups, urban groups, the feds, they're imposing this on us. There's objections there. Yeah, especially Rocky Barker talks about that quite a bit. He's a journalist uh, from Idaho, and he's been covering the the wolf story since reintroduction. And that's one of the points that he makes in there is that I think his soundbite was, well, there was a lot of debate about that because it wasn't our wolves, it was their wolves, meaning um, reintroduced by the federal government. And there was a lot of controversy about that kind of of issue. Um, but he's been on that story for a long time. Yeah. In fact, I think we do have a clip with, with, with him featured along with several others. This is number, number three. This is uh, sort of that, that not only the conflict of uh, outside versus inside, talking about outside the West and inside the West, but uh, it gets to another point here. Of, uh, that you hear also in the film. Some people are expressing this. It's not the fact so much of, of livestock getting killed. It's the way they're getting killed. And that, that goes back to our sort of the uh, our view of wolves. Let's hear this. Some thought wolves were decimating Yellowstone's elk and moose. Wolves killed cattle and sheep, creating enemies. Rocky Barker has covered the wolves' story for the Idaho Statesman newspaper in Boise for years. Wolves have been controversial from day one. One of the problems with reintroducing wolves the way that we did was that it wasn't our wolves, it was their wolves. It was that we could blame the whole wolf issue on somebody else, and the people they usually blame is the federal government. Wolves were delisted for protection under the Endangered Species Act in Montana and Idaho in 2011. Wyoming followed suit in 2012. Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming implemented hunting seasons. In our opinion, there are too many wolves now. And again, the reason we think there are too many wolves is we're just out of balance. In some places, they're having what is an unacceptable effect on other wildlife on the landscape. And so, I think we have to come to terms with the fact that we're gonna li- if we're going to live with wolves, we're going to have to kill them. Legal trapping is controversial. A trapper posed with a wolf in an image that quickly went viral through the Internet. This image has become symbolic of a cultural conflict being fought in the court of public opinion. People were outraged, and it didn't matter whether you were a hunter or a animal lover. And on the other hand, we've got Montanans that are pretty strong-willed and they're saying, hey, we don't have to, we don't want somebody else telling us what to do. Laurie Lyman is a wolf watcher in Yellowstone. She's a retired school teacher from Southern California. She spent hundreds of hours watching wolves in Yellowstone. She feels she knows each wolf. Well, that's a hard question to to talk to people who hate wolves. So I guess I would start out with an understanding that, yes, I understand that they have this feeling about wolves, but could we tell them about them? Could I tell you a little bit about their society? That's a clip from the uh, new film, and uh, the film is uh, called 
Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. We're talking with filmmaker John Howe. By the way, that premieres Monday, November 25th, 9 p.m. on KUED Channel 7. And it has been picked up for national distribution by PBS in January, so you can look for it to both of those places. And we're pleased to have John Howe with us uh, right now on the program. Uh, so, John Howe, that that I thought captured very well. You've captured in those voices very well that that cultural divide. It's uh, some people are upset about how wolves are being killed. Some people are upset about how wolves kill livestock. That's correct. I mean, that's that's really part of the dialogue in the film, and I think it. Uh, you know, again, it's like it depends on your point of view as to what you think is, is good or bad. That's Ron Asheim from the uh, um, Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks doing some of the rebuttal there. Um, but that was he, he's basically talking about, in Rocky Barker, some of the images that have been on the Internet and things that have been quite controversial there. And some people look at that and are appalled. Others think that that's uh, completely appropriate. So it's, um, and a lot of it, has to do, I think, too, with sort of, a, of an increasing number of wolves, or at least some would would uh, say it that way. And I think probably a lot of the data backs that up, at least from the Fish and Wildlife Service, in terms of uh, an increasing population of wolves, although not necessarily in Yellowstone. It seems like their population in the park actually is quite stable or even declining. So... Um, I was just looking at some of the recent numbers here by some of the you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service data, and they it goes. We go into that in the film a little bit, but according to the data, there's about roughly 1,700 wolves in the Rocky Mountain area, and I think they would like that to be around 1,000 wolves. So the data is, you know, it kind of supports that that there is an increasing number of wolves and. Some, especially the, some of the ranchers and hunters, would say that they're rapidly increasing their range. Uh, one of the other ranchers that we talked to is Fred Roberts from uh, Cokeville, Wyoming, and he tells a similar story to that. So, um, so you know, again, it depends on where you sit in this whole divide as to whether you think that's a good thing or whether you, you know, whether you don't. Uh, that's one of Martin Davis's. Uh, Great comments, I guess. We didn't use it in the film, probably should have, but he, he says, and he's been quoted in some of the national press by that, and it's, it's, it's roughly uh, the kind of quote that says, well, you know, we don't tell people in Florida what to do with their gators, and maybe they shouldn't be telling us what to do with our wolves here in the West. So um, it's kind of an interesting point of view all the way around on that. And then, and then we have other people in the film, like Carter Niemeyer, who would basically say that uh, he doesn't think that wolves have been a really serious impediment to the livestock industry. So, And really what we're trying to do with the film is have this dialogue, and it's really about education and, and uh, separating fact from fiction. And then I think what we're trying to do with the film is really ask the right questions. We don't give any answers. Uh, we're just hoping that we ask the right questions. And at the end, an audience really has to make up their own mind as to what they think is right and wrong. What's the reaction been to your previous um, films on wolves? Uh, you know, in terms of, did you get the right balance? I'm sure you get comments back from both sides. You get both sides, you know, I mean, of that. And it depends on, uh, you know, we had a, a nice screening on this film last Friday night, and I was really gratified because most of the audience, and it was it was pretty large, uh, thought the film was very well balanced and that we did a pretty fair job on all sides. So that's really what we're, we're hoping for. Um, 
But like I say, it depends on where you sit because it's uh, usually on both sides with films like this is what what tends to happen is both sides wish you hadn't done um, you know segments with with parts of the other. So, but yet that's uh, really the purpose of the whole thing is to spark that kind of debate and dialogue and. Um, and I hope we have done that. The other films that you you know that you ask about, the, I think there's just a tremendous interest in wolves. They have done really well nationally. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the first film that we did, we did one of the first reintroduction films, and even before wolves came back um, in reintroduction to Yellowstone in Idaho, there was sort of a natural reintroduction happening in Montana at that time, and people were just talking about it. But it got a lot of publicity and did very well. I, you know, again, it was a national PBS film, and the same with the Snow Wolves, which really took its name from a lot of the, the filming that we did up in the uh, Northwest Territories of Canada, where we were. Which is there's a little segment in this film about that too. But we filmed some of the subarctic wolves up there, um, and uh, we were we were lucky to to be able to document a, a pack of subarctic wolves up there, which were. Um, I always describe as uh, white wolves, but uh, Dr. David Meach kind of corrects me that they're not truly Arctic wolves uh, because of the longitude and latitude where they exist. He calls them subarctic wolves. So that's, uh, I'm sure, is probably more accurate. But that's there's a little segment in this film about them and, and uh, quite, uh, quite uh, strikingly beautiful wolves. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, I'll uh, ask John Howe, who, by the way, is a filmmaker for this uh, new film called Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. It's uh, premiering on uh, Monday, November 25th, 9 p.m. on KUED Channel 7, and you'll see it on PBS in January. It's picked up for national distribution then. Uh, I'll ask him about Wolf Watchers. Uh, he says the easiest way to find wolves, and of course, if you're going to make a film about wolves, you got to find some wolves. The easiest way to find wolves in Yellowstone is to find Wolf Watchers. And this also gets us into why, it's a fascinating question, why are we so fascinated with wolves? I'll ask John Howe his theories uh, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State Aggies basketball. A variety of mini-ticket plans are available for those unable to make every game. Information is at utahstateaggies.com or at the USU Spectrum ticket office. And programming is also brought to you by USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with prediabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds, and it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's been almost 20 years since wolves were introduced into Yellowstone National Park and parts of Idaho. 
That was very controversial then. It's remained controversial to this day. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing that wolves, except for the Mexican wolves of the Southwest, be delisted nationwide as an endangered species, and that their management be handled at a state level. Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming have already delisted wolves and implemented hunting seasons. And if it goes nationwide, of course, that'll come to Utah de facto by a federal mandate. Uh, and uh, you'll be able to comment to the Fish and Wildlife Service over the next year. Uh, you're welcome to comment on wolves in the West right now. We're talking with John Howe, filmmaker. His new film is Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. It's premiering on KUED on Monday, November 25th at 9 p.m., and uh, it'll be distributed nationwide to PBS in January. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxis at uh, gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. John Howe, we do have an email. Um, Steve says, what is the current range of gray wolves and Mexican wolves in the U.S.? Are there wolves in the east? Are there wolves in Florida? I seem to recall hearing about Florida wolves, but I'm not sure that memory is trustworthy on that point. For, so the, cur the first question, what's the current range of gray wolves and Mexican wolves in the U.S.? Well, according to the Fish and Wildlife Service, there's about a 400-mile extension of wolf population you know, that extends through about a good part of the west. Um, you know, and like I mentioned, there's some of their numbers. They're saying about 1,700 wolves, and they'd like to see maybe about a thousand. Um, you know, pretty much in the in the west. Um, you know, to the caller's question, there are red wolves in North Carolina that have been endangered, and I think they're making somewhat of a comeback. I'm not sure exactly how much there are wolves in Michigan. That's one of Dave Meach's study areas in Isle Royale, which is in. Uh, uh, Lake Superior, which is kind of an interesting study up there. But, um, you know, wolves uh, seem to be making a comeback. There have been sightings in um, um, California, and there's a, from what I understand, there's about 10 packs in Washington State and about nine in Oregon. And some of those have been dispersing wolves, I guess, you know, from several different areas. I mean, well, I guess mainly two. It would be either for Canada or Idaho. The California wolf is a wolf by the name of OR7 uh, that has been kind of going back and forth over the border between uh, Oregon and California. Um, even in Utah, there have been some sightings, and, and uh, I guess the most famous would be the one in 2002 with a dispersing Yellowstone wolf that made his way and was captured and returned back to to uh, Yellowstone, and there have been various reports of some sightings here in Utah. Uh, I think uh, the DWR has been looking at a, a possible uh, wolf sightings, but I think the last that I heard is that they didn't think these were actually wolves, although there's been, I think, another one up in uh, Chalk Creek up near Colville, from what I'm um, told. Fred Roberts, who's in the film, runs a, uh, a ranch. He's actually, he's up in Cokeville, Wyoming, which is north of the Utah border, and he his main grazing area is up near Jackson, his uh, sheep area, but his main um, operation or his house is near Cokeville, and he told me that he had seen nine wolves on a ridge um, near his house. So most of those folks say that wolves are expanding their range. But uh, And then, you know, I think the, 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 the biggest population of wolves still remains in Canada and Alaska. And uh, from, you know, the Fish and Wildlife uh, Service data shows about 65,000 wolves in Canada and Alaska. Do, do you know anything about Florida wolves? 
Um, you know, anything? I have not heard about Florida wolves. Okay. You know, so I'm not really sure if there's anything going on there. I'm not really aware of that. Let's bring in uh, Paul in Smithfield. Paul, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yes, I want uh, you know, all these conversations that I've heard. Hang on, just please. Yeah, you probably need to turn down your radio. There you go. Sorry about that. Still there? Uh, yes, we're, we're um, here. With all the, you know, the different people that have talked about the wolves, I, I don't recall ever having heard where um, the interviewers have talked to the Native American people who were here much longer and uh, lived with the wolves also uh, with regards to their, um, their attitude towards the wolves. And this is going back to the, the elders who were alive before uh, the majority of Native Americans had been uh, decimated, so to speak. Um, their, their attitude, from all of my reading, and I've studied the Native Americans for about 35 years, is that um, they respected the wolf. It was a family-oriented animal. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't accept the fact that, um, that they kill uh, animals indiscriminately. They're not like the weasel and uh, other animals that do kill for the fun of killing. And um, they kill when necessary, and usually they have a large family. And there's a hierarchy in the wolf uh, breed. So um, there's a, uh, you know, a, an alpha male, alpha female. And these are things that um, they're talked about sometimes in the movies on the wolves, but from the Native American perspective, I mean, having, they having lived with uh, the wolves throughout the United States and down Mexico and, of course, Canada for as long as, uh, you know, the, the Native people have been here, the, the original Aborigines, um, it seems like their input would be uh, just as important as a lot of these anti-wolf um, uh, people. And from my perspective, the anti-wolf people... Uh, Basically, a lot, a lot of it has to do with money, whether they're able to make money or not make money. And that seems like a pretty poor reason uh, for uh, saying the negative things about the wolves that they do, uh, just because they're not making enough money. Well, and, th- thanks. Uh, seems unfair. Thanks, Paul. Uh, interesting perspective. Uh, John, how have you have you talked to Native Americans uh, yes. about this? Thanks, Paul. I mean, that's a very uh, observant point of view, and it's, you know, the best example that I can think of is the Nez Perce. And when the wolves came back, they actually had a blessing ceremony. They met the wolves at the airport. There's even stock footage and things of that. And it's, you know, it's one of the kind of things that, that in terms of making films, and we went through some of this at the screening last Friday. It's one of the things that's a little frustrating because it's, you know, with an hour-long film, what I very often say, it's sort of the cliff note version of what this is. Um, and that perspective, honestly, is a whole other film. You know, I mean, you can make an entire film on the Native American perspective, and I hope somebody will because it's, it's that important. But uh, Paul is right. That's pretty much the way that Native Americans always viewed wolves is just, uh, you know, they had, they were just another animal in that, um, um, you know, in the whole palette of animals in the West. And they had seemed to have a, a very strong reverence for them and, and very, at least in terms of the Nez Perce, very strong reactions when wolves are uh, killed for really just about any reason. So 
I wish we had had the time to go into that, but I think that's a really, uh, really great story. Well, thanks for that perspective, Paul. Uh, you can uh, call uh, the number Paul did, 1-800-826-1495. We're talking with John Howe. Uh, his latest film is Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. It premieres on Monday, November 25th, 9 p.m. on KUED, and then it'll be distributed by PBS in January. Uh, we'd love to get your perspective on wolves. 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, John Howard, I want to address Paul's second point there, uh, and I'm sure it's it's shared by many. He said, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are against wolves, uh, they're losing money. And he said something like, that's a poor reason uh, to be against it. I'm sure if you talk to a rancher, you know, money is money. It's your livelihood. Uh, that's really, you know, part of this whole dialogue. It depends on where you sit on the landscape and where you think whether that's a good idea or whether it's bad. When you start following the money trail on many of these issues, it's a really interesting point of view from all different sides as well. And certainly ranchers and hunters lose money, but, you know, even the researchers and things, um, environmental organizations get money. So it depends on where you sit there as to whether you think that's a really good thing or whether you, you know, think it's it's not. Uh, because, you know, if you talk to the ranchers or the other side of that, they will question, you know, environmental groups making money off of these stories and things like that and, and research and some of the other things that are going on. Um, as Doug Smith says in the film, wolves are probably some of the most highly researched animals in history, uh, certainly in the park there. And... Um, I don't know the price tag for that, but I'm sure it's it's probably not uh, terribly cheap. So money issues are something that's pretty interesting from, from all sides there. Let's hear uh, another clip. This is the uh, last one, I think, uh, number five, is it? Uh, it, it? It goes to that point about research and why, uh, why at least some researchers uh, want to, <laughs> to research wolves. Uh, anyway, let's hear this just from, from the film. Soon as we stop putting information out there, the myths, the fables, the legends take over. Misinformation plagues wolves worse than fishing and hunting stories. People make up stories in the absence of solid information. And knowledge and data are power. And so, uh, you know, that's that's one reason I, I can't remember who that is. Uh, that's Doug Smith. Doug Smith. He's the uh, Dr. Doug Smith. He's the uh, leader of the Yellowstone Wolf Project. So this gets to uh, you know, wolf as metaphor, and that's certainly powerful on both sides. You know, the wolf is demon, and and on the other side, wolf is sort of this heroic figure. Um, and here's another quote from from the film uh, Molly Beatty. Uh, she's emphatic about this. She says, "Wolves are not the incarnation of anything." They're just wolves, and so you have those two competing ideas. Yeah. Ed Bangs makes the same point in the film, and, and I hope people will see it because a lot, of the, a lot of the film is we just let people talk, and some of that kind of thing goes to the point that uh, Doug Smith and Molly Beatty are addressing um, you know, with wolves is, is sort of uh, taking on human characteristics, if you will, anthropomorphizing, um, and then they address those kinds of things as to uh, – basically saying in terms of what Ed Bangs is saying in the film is that wolves are just animals. They're doing what animals do. And there's not really any any uh, human values that go into that. They're just doing what they're programmed to do. Uh, some of the ranchers would disagree with that. They're basically saying that they love to kill and, and those uh, kinds of things. But uh, 
again, to Doug Smith's point that you just played is what he's trying to do is, is through research and data is come up with scientific reasons for the, for why things are happening. And I think what he's, he's really hoping to do is address some of these points of view. We have Bettina from Springdale who's joined us on the phone. Bettina, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yes, I have a little buzz, so I'll make it short. Two things. Um, the first thing is, uh, where did he get his funding to do his research and film? And also, uh, you had a guest on a couple of years ago who's the female explorer. Do you remember? She's written two or three books. Oh, boy, I'm trying to remember her name. That was a fascinating interview. Uh, yeah, and she had one book that her and her husband lived a year with the wolves, and it's a great book. Okay, we'll try to look that up. I'll, I'll try to remember her name. Yeah, that was an enjoyable interview. So uh, thanks for those questions, Bettina. Okay, bye. Thank you. Uh, so, John Howe, uh, funding. She's wondering where your funding came from. Well, the funding, the main funding for this film came from the Pacific no- uh, Mountain Network of PBS stations. And basically, um, I guess you could say most to all of the stations in the West put money into the funding of this. And I think the reason is because they looked at it as a very important story that deserved to be told. Um, and that's that's really where the, the funding came from on this film. Um, you know, she may be talking about Jamie Dutcher. I'm not sure. Uh, the Dutchers lived with wolves, the Sawtooth Pack, um, in Idaho, and then had a book, and they've actually made a couple of films, I think, for the Discovery Channel and maybe a couple of others. But, um, but that's, uh, I think, what they were hoping to do as well. So maybe that's it. And there's there's been several books that have been that have been really great on wolves. Shadow Mountain by Renee Askins and Doug Smith, who's in the film, wrote a book, one of the uh, real definitive books about reintroduction. Carter Niemeyer, who's in the film, I thought I think he's one of the most interesting characters that I've run across. He wrote a book. Uh, and I think he's been on your show uh, called Wolfer. Yes, a very interesting, um, uh, which man. is a really interesting book from his point of view. He he because he came at it originally from being uh, somebody who was assigned to control wolves, and then came around to the other point of view. So I think uh, he's a pretty interesting character in this whole saga, and he really one of the first to bring uh, forensic science to the wolf issue of coming in and really trying to figure out, uh, say, with the livestock kill, exactly what happened there and whether wolves were to blame or or some other cause. I wonder what your answer is to the, and I asked this of, you know, I asked it of Carter Niemeyer and anybody who deals with wolves. There, there's a fascination we have with wolves that we don't have with many other animals. And I wonder what you think that is. Well, I'll just give you my personal opinion. I think it has, a lot of it has to do with dogs. You know, some people really like dogs and you know, they see the same kind of thing in wolves, although a lot of the experts will tell us, you know, there's, uh, and there's a section in the in the film from Mission Wolf there with Kent Weber and his group. But one of the things that he says is wolves really do not make pets. They're just they just they're not uh, genetically programmed for that. They might make a friend, is what he says, but they'll never make a pet. And that's caused a lot of these animals to be killed over the years, where people think they can adopt one, but they get an animal that's pretty hard to deal with. And uh, but I think that's a lot of the fascination is, you know, we seem to have a, be a society that really um, relates to dogs and those kinds of things. And wolves, even though that perception may not be accurate, that may be where some of the fascination comes from. And the other thing is just the myths and the stories, I think, is 
sort of some see wolves as sort of demonic, you know, um, werewolf kind of stories, Little Red Riding Hood, and I think that's led to sort of a fascination uh, with wolves. Uh, probably not completely accurate, but at the same time, it has led to that whole mythology of wolves, and they seem to. Uh, be where some people look at them really as the spirit of the wilderness and others look at them as something that is uh, not a good thing. Uh, one of the ranchers in your film, Jeff Sidaway, uh, he talks about losing sheep to wolves, and he observed, very interesting observation, somebody tells uh, people that he's lost sheep, they're pretty blasé, uses that word. When he uh, describes how he's lost dogs, uh, they have a stronger reaction. Well, Jeff is a good example in the film of of someone that we kind of just let talk and give their point of view. And I think, uh, well, I hope people will uh, listen to that and, and hopefully enjoy it. But that's what he talks about. He's lost sheep to wolves, but he really talks about uh, pretty dominantly about the uh, guard dog issue. And, you know, the guard dogs come out, they, a lot of them are Great Pyrenees and Akbash mixed dogs, but they come out and they essentially imprint on the sheep and stay with them. Uh, just like members of the flock. So from his point of view, when the wolves come in, they very often kill the guard dogs first, and that's a very violent scene, and he describes it in the film. So, But he basically says that they haven't got a lot of sympathy sometimes when they talk about uh, losses of sheep or cattle, but when people see that what's happened to or hear about what's happened to some of the guard dogs, then they have a different reaction. Uh, the uh, film is uh, Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. The filmmaker is John Howe. It premieres Monday, November 25th, 9 p.m. on KUED. Uh, tell me about Wolf Watchers. Uh, I hadn't hadn't heard about these. And, and you, I guess you connected in with Wolf Watchers. If you want to find wolves, you say the best way to find them is to find a wolf watcher. Well, it is. I mean, usually what we're doing as filmmakers is we're working with biologists or other people that really know where wolves are and how to find them. I mean, that's, a, that's one of the common things that I hear is sometimes as people go to Yellowstone, and although I think it's one of the best places probably, probably now in the world to be able to see wolves and grizzlies in their natural environment. Um, even Alaska with Denali, a lot of the, um, from what the biologists up there tell me, a lot of the sightings in Denali are down. Uh, same with the population of the uh, wolves in Denali. But um, at Yellowstone, that's really one of the, the big secrets, and I don't know if they'll appreciate me telling that or not, but it's, if you can find the wolf watchers, very often you can find the wolves. And you'll see them, especially up in, in Lamar Valley on the north end of the park, and you'll see them up there with their spotting scopes and uh, some have uh, radio telemetry and other things. And that's one of the real interesting things from a filmmaking standpoint is we usually can find the wolves just about every day, but that doesn't mean that they're in any kind of a position to be filmed. So, uh, But through the spotting scopes, very often you can see them. And so the people that come to uh, Yellowstone, that's usually, you know, a lot of times that's the animal that they're really hoping to see. But just one quick uh, side on it, you know, from a filmmaker standpoint, what's really interesting to me is that, you know, we search and search and search and search for trying to film wolves and trying to find them in, a, you know, filmable situations. And what tends to happen so many times is, or, you know, you'll be filming up there and somebody drives along the road and they say, you know, because usually when you have a camera, they'll ask what you're doing. And when I tell them, well, we're up there filming wolves, and they said, oh, well, we just saw four or five down, you know, down at some other location. And I had one group show me on their iPhone right by the road. You know, of course, we've been searching and, you know, doing all these kinds of things, trying to find them and 
all the rest, and he had some really nice pictures right on his iPhone. Uh, on the iPhone? Yeah. He, wow. taken, they were just right on, by the side of the road, and, you know, that tends to happen with when you talk to tourists. A lot of people tell you that. They're right along the side of the road, or, you know, they've been able to see them uh, pretty close. And So a lot of it is luck of the draw, but uh, the wolf watchers are pretty dedicated. They're out you know, most days, uh, like in the film, Rick McIntyre, who actually works for the Park Service, is, that's part of his mantra is to educate people about wolves. And uh, very often that's what he's doing is showing wolves through spotting scopes and things like that because it's, like I say, so many people come to the park to be able to see wolves, and that's a really great way to do it. If you can find them, very often they're not uh, shy about sharing their scope with you so you can actually watch a wolf or, you know, talk about it or other things. And that's, there's a segment in the film about that, but it, uh, that's a really good way of finding wolves in, in uh, Yellowstone. I even had one PBS executive, you know, talking to me because we were talking about the film. And she said, well, I just went to Yellowstone. I was all over the place and I really didn't see any wolves. And, you know, and I was telling her this same sort of, I guess this now has to be our secret between us and all of your listeners, but, uh, we promise. A good way, that's a good way to find wolves, and I, I don't think most of them will mind me saying that because usually they're very willing to, to share that information. Is it generally safe? Wolves generally are not going to come up and bother you? Wolves uh, traditionally are not very interested in people. Um, you know, there used to be that statistic that there had never been a human killed by wolves in North America, and I think now there have been two, from what I understand. And I'm not sure of the, of the uh, circumstance uh, about that, but uh, um, Ed Bangs talks about that a little bit in the film. But, you know, there's the interaction in terms of between wolves and humans in, in that regard, uh, not much data to support the fact that wolves are, are dangerous to humans. I wonder if you talk just a little bit. Uh, we're nearing the end of the program; just a few minutes left. By the way, you can, if you'd like to uh, get a quick call in, we can. We still have time. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Or email upraxcess at gmail dot com. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. We're talking with John Howe about his new film, Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. Uh, John Howe, I wonder if you could uh, talk a bit about uh, the, the scientists you talk to. People are advocating for this whether they're pleased with the restoration of balance as they see it in the ecosystem? I think they are for the most part. Uh, Dave Meach was our script consultant. He's considered widely, Dr. David Meach is one of the, the great experts on wolves, and and that's essentially what he says in the, in the film, is that he thinks wolves are doing quite well. Um, a lot of it depends on your point of view. Again, like I say, the, the Yellowstone wolves, the less that I saw on their website, they're still talking about uh, wolves in the park declining about 60% since 2007. And a lot of that, um, well, they say mostly because of a smaller elk population. So, but I think, you know, I think most of them, most of the biologists and scientists would say that they're doing pretty well, you know, maybe even real well over the West and, and uh, certainly parts of Alaska and Canada. Although they certainly have, even in Alaska and Canada, they have many of the same issues, I think, of the wolves of the American West, is that, you know, an increasing population and more development and, and uh, uh, encroachment on territories where they didn't really have that kind of pressure in the past. But uh, I think most of the scientists and biologists are pretty pleased with the progress. 
Uh, one of your guests, I, I think this one's from uh, Friends of Wildlife, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. talked about the, the cascading effects, which we, sometimes we don't think about. He said when wolves reintroduced uh, means fewer elk, which, in, which means more willows, which means more beavers and songbirds. That's Suzanne Stone from the Defenders of Wildlife, and she talks about that. And, you know, again, I wish that was something we had more time to go into, but that's uh, uh, a significant rebuttal to some of uh, the other side that uh, looks at, you know, when her point of view and, and Bruce Babbitt's and some others that are represented in the film is that there were too many elk in Yellowstone and they were doing, and they were artif- their numbers were artificially high in the absence of their main predator, or main historic predator. And when wolves came back, a lot of these other things started coming back, too, like the ones that you mentioned. So, um, again, you know, it depends on where you set in that cultural divide, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And, you know, if, you're, if your livelihood is based on large numbers of elk, then that may be an issue. But Doug Smith also says that in the film, is, you know, if you're, that he's a hunter. And if you live near Yellowstone Park, you're just going to have to accept that fact that there are going to be less elk. Um, but that's his point of view. And uh, one of the ranchers you interviewed, the one in Cokeville, Fred Roberts, he's philosophical about it. He says wolves and ranchers will have to coexist for the foreseeable future. Fred is basically saying that it's the law of the land, and that's going to happen, and I think that's his soundbite in the film, is that it's, you know, in, in his lifetime things are not going to change. So ranchers and wolves are going to have to coexist. The question is exactly how. I think he was hoping the hunting would be a little more... Um, promising in terms of controlling wolves in his area and um, you know from his standpoint there haven't been a lot of wolves that have been taken in those hunts but again from from the other side of view that uh, you know they probably would think uh, that that's been too many wolves so it's uh, you know it's all part of the cultural divide but I think Fred is is uh, representing a point in the film that he he would view as being realistic he'd probably prefer that there weren't wolves but he realizes he's going to have to live with them. We'll leave it there uh, out of time. John Howe is the filmmaker. His new film is Return of the Wolves, the next chapter. That'll be premiering on KUED 9 p.m. on Monday, November 25th, and going nationwide in January. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. And uh, for producers uh, Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Barnyards, a celebration of stories and memories from Utah State University's historic Aggie Barn. The Aggie Barn started as a horse barn in 1919, but since then has undergone several transformations to provide offices and workspace for professors, scientists, artists, and their various departments. Thad Box, Dean Emeritus of the College of Natural Resources, shared with us some of his memories of the barn in the days when it was considered valuable real estate on the USU campus. Dean Box came to Utah State University as a professor in 1959 when he was fresh out of graduate school. He remembers the barn at that time still showed traces of its former use as a horse barn, with some pens still remaining around it. Later, he got to know the barn a bit better. It wasn't until after I came back here in 1970 as dean, as dean of the College of Natural Resources, and my office was right across there, and we were just growing like mad during those days. We had uh, 
in fact, over 1,400 students in natural resources in the early 60s. But then I was in and out of the barn practically every day for, for a couple of years. Then. Apparently, the art department and College of Natural Resources managed to get along fairly well while they shared the barn. The graduate students that are over there really like those offices. Uh -huh. uh, not the offices so much, but some of them became models for the nude modeling. Oh. <laughs> Professor Box also remembers another incident involving models in the art barn that occurred in the late 60s or early 70s. Gerald Sherratt, who was he's uh, mayor of St. George now, he went down there to be their president of Southern Utah University. He was the uh, university beggar, the development officer at that time, and, and very good at that. But he was a very modest sort of a guy, didn't, uh, nothing off color around Jerry. And one day he was bringing a, a group of uh, donors that trying to get money for it. And I think he was, I don't know whether it was money to redo the, that building or what, but he had a number of men and women both and he brought them around and he up by our offices. And then he took them up to the third floor and he walked in on an art class with a nude model sitting <laughs> <laughs> and he got them out of there so quickly. There was sort of a standing joke over there how fast he got the donors out of the, uh, You know, I think that was not well known on campus that they were having uh, uh, art classes with nude models at the time. Barn Yarns is a production of Utah State University's Museum of Anthropology and College of Humanities and Social Sciences with help from the Utah Humanities Council. To find out more, check out our blog online at usubarn.blogspot.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 2. Introducing 100% whole grain bread with raisins, oatmeal date bread, millet pan loaf, and ciabatta buns. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.